0: This is the FS Tech Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this FS Tech Podcast. Just a note before we start. This conversation was originally recorded last year for a video Q&A, but we wanted to kick off the year by revisiting some of our favourite discussions with a range of industry experts. Today, we're going to listen to our discussion with Adam McLaughlin, Global Head of Financial Crime Strategy and AML SME at Nice Actimize, and Graham McKenzie, Head of AML at the Law Society of Scotland, on the challenges facing designated non-financial businesses and professions. The full video Q&A can be watched over on fstech.co.uk where you'll find a range of insightful interviews, roundtables and webinars. Hello and welcome to this FSTech video Q&A. Today we're going to be discussing designated non-financial businesses and professions, otherwise known as DNFBPs for short, and the challenges they face in complying with anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing regulations. As money laundering and terrorism financing continue to pose substantial threats to economies worldwide, DNFBPs have begun to emerge as key players in safeguarding against these risks. From real estate agents and lawyers to accountants and casino operators, DNFBPs encompass a diverse range of sectors that are vulnerable to exploitation by illicit actors. As noted in a blog post from last year by one of our guests, Adam McLaughlin, the Basel Institute's AML Institute INDEX has highlighted that DNFBPs are significantly less protected against money laundering risks than financial institutions and that DNFBPs do less to contribute to AML efforts and should be considered a serious AML vulnerability in most jurisdictions. This is further complicated by inconsistent levels of regulation before DNFBPs with many countries seeing each industry supervised by its own regulatory body. I'm Jonathan Easton, editor of FS Tech, and joining me today to discuss these issues in depth are Adam McLaughlin, Global Head of Financial Crime Strategy and AML SME at Nice Actimize, and Graham McKenzie, Head of AML at the Law Society of Scotland. Thank you both for being here today. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Uh, Graham, I'll start with you. Um, as a lot of our audience is from the traditional financial sector might be wondering why it's worth their time to listen to us discuss issues facing the likes of art dealers, notaries, charities, those kinds of business. Why is it important that they're aware of the issues facing uh, DNFBPs in terms of AML and CTF?
1: Okay, thanks Jonathan and thanks very much for um, um, getting me on the show today. An AML-CTF system is it can only be effective when it works in a coordinated fashion um, with consistent standards between regulated professions and indeed across borders. Um, to my mind, any vulnerability will be exploited by criminals who ultimately seek access to the financial system. Um, one such way they may do this is by utilising the services of DNFPBs, for example, obscure to add complexity or anonymity to the purchase or ownership or transfer of assets or access to the financial system by way of a professional's pool client account and onward transmission for example. Um, using a professional may also add a veneer of respectability which may help disguise the true nature of activity or source of funds in question. It can also make it difficult for law enforcement to track and trace, so especially cross-border or to and from, for example, example secrecy jurisdictions. Now, it's important to state at this stage that 99% of solicitors and accountants and others that I come across are completely legitimate and understa- undertaking local transactions for local people like you and I. I think all of us on this call will will have probably bought a property in the last 10, 15 years, whatever it may be, and none of us, hopefully, are money launderers, yeah. So, and I think it's also important to stress, and I, I hear what Adam had said in the introduction there, I, I think examples as cited in the press uh, are at the extreme end of the market, yes, We do see large value property transactions for, say, ultra high net worth individuals and complex beneficial owner chains running through privacy jurisdictions. But if I take it in the context of Scotland, certainly, when we have 11,600 solicitors, we have 1,300 firms, only 700 firms of of those 1,300 are in scope of the money laundering regulations. Um, so we have 600 to practice, for example, criminal law only or niche environmental law or whatever it may be. So they're out with the scope of the money laundering regulations. The other thing I would ma- mention is a diverse population present a very diverse range of AML risks. So the vast majority, 85% of, of um, the firms in Scotland, they're very small businesses. They're one or two partners through to, you know, Um, who operate in the highlands of Scotland or in in rural locations. We do, of course, have extremely large multinational practices. Um, As I say, they're geographically spread from small rural locations to Edinburgh, Glasgow, London and beyond. Most of them are multidisciplined, so they do a bit of conveyancing, they do a bit of family work, they do a bit of litigation company law, through to very niche stuff, yeah, road traffic accidents or planning law. Yeah. So, accordingly, we have a huge spread of AML risk profiles and exposures. Now, it may not be completely obvious how some professionals may then become involved in potential money laundering. Um, Money laundering, excuse me. You, You mentioned notaries, right? So, take notarization of documents, for example. I'll give you a particularly egregious or egregious example of how this service can be abused. And again, I must state, this is certainly not what we see 99% of the time. So notaries. Okay, so uh, we had a case a few years ago um, in Scotland where a notary was being asked to sign off hundreds of documents on a weekly or monthly basis, yeah? Those documents are then being taken abroad and used to, as part of CDD, to open accounts in Moldova and Lithuania. The Moldovan bank and the Lithuanian banks in question took the the sign of approval of the notarization of, of the documents by a Scottish solicitor as a sign of legitimacy and a veneer of respectability, as I said those those documents were being used to open accounts, which were then used to launder the proceeds of child sex trafficking. And I think this really demonstrates the issue. DNFPBs can provide services or cover necessary to access the financial system, which a lot of the viewers uh, will be involved in, in on this call. And that's why it's an, uh, of an importance to uh, an FS audience. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Very, very good overview there, Graham. Uh, Certainly, I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate, you know, there's the kind of obviously the KYC element from being a financial institution. uh, But there's kind of KYC beyond that. If you're dealing, as you say, with a notary, notarised document, it's kind of there's you there is an onus on you to also check that, you know, that their business is legitimate and even if they are legitimate um th- that there isn't any kind of trail there that you know it's, it's an entire maelstrom of issues um that's, uh, i feel like we've only just scratched the surface of here um so thank you for your for your overview um adam you wrote an article earlier this year which predicted that there'll be an increased pressure uh, to align regulations globally uh, for dnfbps and as i mentioned uh, in the introduction there are lots of uh, one of the barriers at the moment is the fact that so many of these industries have got their own regulatory uh, bodies which are entirely kind of siloed and in isolation and they've got so many different standards they have to adhere to Um, in q1 for example uh, we saw the UAE impose fines of over 14 million pounds on 137 uh, DNFBPs operating in the country. Are these are these kinds of fines something that you expect will become more commonplace going forward? And what's happened more recently that's caused regulators to to really act now?
2: Sure. So so I'd like I'd like to I think start with a comment you made about you know. DNFBPs are regulated by different bodies um, and you know that is absolutely the case in the in the UK um, there you have the FCA who regulate effectively financial institutions are on the main you've got HMRC who regulate um, some of the DNFBPs, Um, for example you know um, accountancy firms and you know real estate um, art dealers are very much on the HMRC side and then you have the Law Society of Scotland and the um the you know the UK um, law regulators as well who regulate um, legal firms and and um, lawyers, so you very much got that split. Um, and I think you know the UK, I think in my view, are probably well ahead of the curve in terms of how we regulate DNFPs. You know, would I like to see bigger fines? You know, I know Graham's on the call, but obviously, I'd like to see bigger fines um, as more deterrent. But I think there's a reason why some of the fines are as they are in terms of the sizes. You know, you don't get these billions of dollar fines that you do for the banking sector. And I think, you know, is that really reasonable to give a billion dollar fine to a family office that's, you know, got three staff? Probably not. Um then I'd like to turn it around to the fact that actually you you take out look outside the UK and actually you talk about these different regulatory bodies regulating DFPs. That isn't the case everywhere because not every country, even what we'd class as um quote unquote Western countries don't fully regulate DNFPs, which is a challenge. So you look at, um, you know, for example, Australia. Australia do not regulate DNFPs um, at the moment. So if you're in real estate or you're, you know, a law firm or an accountancy firm, you know, you do not have a liability to have to report suspicious activity on behalf of your clients. Massive exposure of risk, and I, I come on to the, why I think the risk is there in a minute um but you know the australia were looking to um introduce um the increased transparency bill i believe it's called the ml increased transparency bill but it keeps getting delayed it's not actually going through it's been on the cards for a while now and it's not really going anywhere so they're looking to do it but they haven't done it yet you then turn to the us okay Big Western power, you know, it's the biggest um, engine in the world in terms of GDP and, you know, it's the biggest economy in the world, right? They do not fully regulate NFPs either. Um, So some industries are regulated. However, for example, if you look at um, real estate, for example, that is not fully regulated yet in the U.S., um, and the in 2021, I believe it was, the um, U.S. Financial Int- um, Intelligence Network, for, so FinCEN, um, issued an advance notice, notice of proposed rulemaking in response to money laundering um, in the real estate industry. Nothing's come to the fore yet. So at the moment, that industry is is not regulated. So you've got potentially loads of money going into U.S. real estate, um, unvetted, unchallenged, and you've potentially got criminal money going into U.S. real estate. You then come into um a bill that the us tried to introduce called the um corporate um the enablers act sorry um, not the corp- corporate transparency bill it was the enablers act so this would have been the one of the, the biggest changes in us um regulation of money laundering for years um i think in nearly 20 years it had been the biggest um change of it and really what was that what was that what was the enablers act all about the enablers act was all about bringing DNFPPs into the fold of regulation. Um, So require things like trust companies, lawyers, art dealers, and and others um, in the DNFP sector to basically come under the same regulations as um, financial institutions and have to start reporting suspicious activity. Um, Did that law come into place? No. Um, Why did it not come into place? Because um, in December 2022, the US Senate, so this is the US Senate blocked the bill which would have um, allowed the Enablers Act to come into place to regulate um, these industries. Why was it blocked? Uh, because there's a lot of um, a lot of the parties involved have lots of money, and they basically did a lot of um, bidding to try and stop the Senate from passing this law, and it won. So they didn't pass the law um, in the Senate. So at the moment, the Enablers Act is on the shelf, waiting to go through. So we talk about all these regulators and imposing regulations on DNFPs, that is not the case. And this is causing real issues because the UK are quite ahead of the game. We we regulate DNFPs. Other Western countries don't. And actually, if you look outside of other Western countries, a lot of other countries don't either um, regulate DNFBPs. So you've got this real sort of like yin and yang. You've got some areas where you regulate it, some areas where you don't. So if you're a criminal, what do you do? You go to the areas that don't regulate it to buy your property, to um, use... Um, law firms and accountancy firms and uh, notaries etc and then you can bring the money back into other systems where they do regulate it so you've really keep created this this system where you've got gaping great holes where you can utilize the services of NFPPs outside of the regulated sector now why I think is are DNFPs an issue? Um and I think we'll go back to that point. Then I'll come back to your question, Jonathan. So <laughs> um I'm sort of going off on the tangent here, but I think it's important to add these points. Um, and then you go back to the issue of why is it DNFPs are a focus area and why is it I feel they are a risk. So One point is going back to Graham's point earlier, which is, you know, some of these organisations can enable access to financial services because they give an air of authenticity to individuals or corporates. So it gives them that authenticity and therefore the banks and the financial sector will more openly give them accounts and access to accounts and financial services on the back of that. The other issue is, is this, is... Uh, if you are a DNFP yourself, so you are a law firm, you're a real estate firm, you're an accountancy firm, you you're operating a business, okay? That business needs banking services. So USA, so for example, I, I don't have one, but I've got a, I've got an accountancy firm and I've got a lot of clients I offer accountancy services to, okay? I need to store the money that my customers give me, so I will create a bank account with a financial institution the financial institution is onboarding me as the customer me um but not me and me personally adam you know be adam glocklin limited um accountancy so, or adam glocklin accountancy limited so they're, they're onboarding my company All right the money i take into from my customers is going into adam McLaughlin accountancy limited okay it's it's effectively an, an omnibus account within a financial services firm okay so i could have a hundred customers all give me money and it's all going into one account, which is Adam McLaughlin Accountancy Limited. The only person who knows where that distribution of money goes is me. Okay. All the all the financial institution is seeing is money coming in and money going out from Adam McLaughlin Accountancy Limited. You know, where that goes to and who that goes to, you know, they don't always have that visibility. Which means if I'm if I'm a criminal accountant and all my customers are criminals, then the bank doesn't see that and they're relying on me having or doing my due diligence, or so my customers, okay, as part of me having a service with them as a, a bank, okay, they would do their monitoring, they will do their transaction monitoring, all fine and dandy, but all they're doing transaction monitoring is, is my accounts, my money in, my money out, okay? And they don't often see the underlying customer who, who that is coming from or going to, um, which obviously is a challenge, right? They, they are blind, okay? And then you go to the point of some, you know, and again, Graham's point earlier is, is completely valid. 99% of these organizations and businesses are legal, they are legitimate. Okay, and they, they do you know legal legal work with you know legal parts of society, but there's others who are um corrupt, there's others who are criminal in nature, and there's others who will operate criminally uh with their customers. And with some of these smaller firms you know, they will often get very good relations with their customers because they want the business, they want the money. And, you know, and I guess when I was in in law enforcement, I did see this probably more often than I'd like to see. But you'd see some, you know, organisations working with a community of people, shall I say. Um, And that community wasn't always the best community of people um, in existence. And, you know, you then rely on them if they got a really good relationship with their customers who potentially are criminals you then rely on these people to do the right thing and actually do what is regulatory required of them and to file a SAR and you know this is when you get into issues where are they all filing SARs on their criminal customers possibly not And this is where regulators need to step in and and sort of you know supervise and regulate which is what they're you know what they're doing and actually if you look at the UK um, you know some of the numbers um, you know, end of 2022, HMRC um, added, I think, 68 agencies agencies um, to list of businesses not complying with money laundering regulations um, and issued fines to these, these 68 um, firms of around about 520000 um sterling, pound, well, fines issued. Um, then if you look at um, what HMRC are doing there, also what law societies are doing, like Law Society of Scotland, they are fining, um, they are sort of looking to prosecute um, individuals where they are not compliant or they are criminal in nature. Um, but you've got art dealers have been fined, you've had gambling firms that have been fined. Um so you you are, you know, fines are getting issued, people are getting arrested, people are getting prosecuted, and there are examples of that. Um but I do think for some for some of these firms it is easy to get into that crux. And I think that's why regulators are looking at it because actually there hasn't been a heavy focus, I think, in the past um on it um not just from the regulators but from industry as a whole and people haven't really thought of dnfpps as being an issue per se but i think that's why there's this focus um hopefully that's answered your question jonathan i did go off on some tangents but oh, I just, no, we, very we got much there.
0: appreciate <laughs> it and a really good overview there um certainly um a lot of the stuff you're talking about uh, about how you know It almost makes it sound simple, the process of if you were a malicious actor, uh, the kind of steps that you'd go through for money laundering purposes by, you know, saying it's the classic example I always think of is there's that beginning of that episode of Ozark, where he's talking to his son. I don't know if you've seen Ozark. Uh, he's, uh, He's talking to his son um basically the setup of the show is he's uh, uh been given all this money by the mob to he's a you know criminal accountant he's been given all this money by the mob to clean uh, and he's talking to his son about the process of how you do this through the uh, literally setting up a a laundrette of the process of cleaning the money and everything like that and it sounds pretty similar in terms of you know go to one of these markets where things are slightly less um you know regulated and 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 just you know where there are no checks and balances no one really is paying attention to the money that's coming in um and, and it's just the money going out um so yeah very very interesting perspective there and certainly the interesting views on the, the different countries and graham i wanted to follow up with you on on what something that adam said there um it seems as though as adam said the uk is very far ahead of a lot of other nations whether it's because of america uh the, the politics of it all and the kind of the lobbying that's involved there and you know how difficult it is to get things done in america uh or it's a country like australia where these things uh you know for whatever reason there aren't these kind of balances put in place why has the uk been able to tackle this issue which a lot of other major markets really haven't been able to
1: Yeah, um, good question. Um, Just to pick up on a couple of things that Adam was saying, I think um, a lot of the accountants certainly in the UK are regulated by, for example, uh, the Institute of Chartered Accountants England and Wales, and um, the default would be HMRC. I think Tranche 2 in Australia will be coming in pretty shortly. Um, I'm aware that for a number of years, for a long time, uh, it wasn't, but I think things are ramping up uh, in Australia now. Uh, ahead of Tron um, 2 coming in, which is, sorry, the uh, DNFPBs coming into scope of their anti-money laundering legislation. Um, another thing I was going to touch on is uh, I'll, I'll respectfully kind of disagree in terms of fining. Sometimes I look at the fines being levied in financial services and, and, and I ask the question, is it really effective though? If uh, as a as uh, you know, the global um drive towards effectiveness in anti-money laundering. I think that's important. I mean, sometimes I think the financial services potentially see see some of this stuff as a as a cost of doing business. Um and but but the gains outweigh the cost of doing business. So that's just a, a point. And I mean that that's against the backdrop of, for example, the new economic crime and uh, transparency bill coming in. Um the Law Society of Scotland, or should I say uh, the Solicitor's Discipline Tribunal up in Scotland, uh, will move to unlimited fines uh, basis moving forward. That is That saying, it's being said, I'm not sure if um, that that will be levied very, very, very often, to be honest, uh, because I think there's more effective means of driving compliance, frankly, than fines in many, many cases. Um, on On the point with regards to why is the UK... Um, because I think you, the UK has long been seen as the global epicentre and powerhouse of financial services and indeed um, probably the DNFPB se- sector. Um, a lot of uh, international uh, clients, organisations want to do business in the UK and particularly London of course and with it um, has grown an enormous DNFPb market uh, particularly in the currency and the legal sector because um in the certainly in the legal sector um a lot of international organizations and individuals see uh, the UK legal system as premier and they want to be able to do business uh, under that that legal system so I think that is that's been the driver that's 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 the backdrop at least. Uh, and in recent years, obviously, you know, probably 2015 now or so uh, might be getting the dates wrong, but the Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, explosions, a, a lot of leaks, a lot of stories, a lot of headlines of, of London being the epicenter of global dirty mo- money laundering. That caught the eye of politicians. Uh, and for example, uh, the Office of Professional Body, ML Supervision, uh, the supervisor of supervisors, they supervised... The Law Society of Scotland uh, came into being in 2018, and that has driven standards as well uh, in in the DNFPV sector, certainly across the 22 professional body supervisors. So um, I think uh, there was good work being undertaken, but that has really ramped up in recent years. uh, And I'll go on to talk a bit bit about that in a minute. Uh, But I think the focus is on the UK, uh, and quite rightly so, for the reasons I've, I've explained.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that. And certainly, yeah, looking back at the Panama Papers, you can kind of look at that as a very much an instigator for a lot of the things that would happen in terms of uh, financial regulation um, going forward, Um, you know, specifically talking about the difference between dnfbps and traditional finance and institutions and i know adam touched on this previously um graham what are some of the specific challenges that um that dnfbps face when implementing aml and ctf compliance programs you know presuming these are you know legitimate businesses you know these kind of Maybe smaller businesses, not big multinational, but like a family office or something like that. What are the specific challenges they face with AML and CTF?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, you know, family offices are very specific. I mean, let's be clear, you know, you walk down any local high street in England, Wales or Scotland. These aren't family offices, you know, family offices are, you know, attached out to high network individuals, etc. These are small Local high street solicitors or accountants, accountants, who we're talking about, and that's key, I think, because from a demographic perspective, as you mentioned, most of these are very small businesses, and they operate more akin to a high street shop in many cases than a bank. So, therefore, you know, these people have been trained in law, yeah, or accountancy. They've not been trained in risk management, and they've not been trained specifically in the AML discipline, and that's where to start. So, resources. You know, a lot of these businesses, and the, the vast majority of these small high street solicitors accountancy, they, they're not making money hand over fist. Yeah. The, and they are trying to, uh, you know, they, they are, you know, um, doing this to, to make a living, to put their kids to school, etc., etc. Yeah. So resources are tight. Yeah. They they don't, nor would they employ an AML risk management or a compliance function like a bank would. Skill sets are tight because they're lawyers or accountants, they're not AML professionals. Time is tight, there are cost implications, and then you compare and contrast that to the risk profile of these local high street um, shops. Yeah, and then for example, then you've got sanctions, it's an absolute requirement. It is, although there's been guidance lately from OFSI, which is really welcome, it is, it is an absolute requirement. Yeah, PEPs. Well, if I'm a local, um a solicitor on a local high street in the rural highlands of scotland how many pets do i come across on a day to day basis very 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 few yeah so this stuff has to be proportionate yeah so i think that's a key difference whereas compared to a high street bank yeah Another difference lies within the nature of the client relationship. So either they may have a long-term relationship over a significant time frame and multiple transactions. Yeah. So, you know, a local business uses, you know, I don't know, a, a local, I don't know, haulage business, whatever it might be, right? And there's there's there's, you know, are they higher risk potentially? But take any business, agricultural, whether it's human trafficking risks, we get that, right? But a farmer, right? They, they use their solicitor on an ongoing basis for a long, over a number of years, right? So therefore, the solicitor can build up a real holistic picture of the background, the circumstances, source of funds, the source of wealth, and the like. And therefore, that helps to mitigate risk. Or, in many cases, there is not an ongoing relationship as such between client and professional. So the relationship is based upon events in the client's life cycle. So a birth a death, a marriage, a, a probate on the back of a death, estate planning, wealth management, purchase of a business or a house, right? The only time I really, well, apart from in my personal life, speak to the solicitor is when of the, one of those events happens. Yeah, and that's the, 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 for the most part, yeah? And there can be years between those events, yeah? And you compare and contrast that to um, a bank, uh, and a current account you or i have a current account we use it day in day out so transaction monitoring is very very different for example yeah and i think um you know and we talk, we talked about sars we'll come on to that but um i think fundamental challenges the mlrs and even to the to a degree pocket requirements are built around financial services So, as I said, the relationship between client and solicitor, as it describes, makes screening, ongoing monitoring requirements, very different propositions. So, 2811 of the MLRs says you conduct the ongoing monitoring of of business relationships. Okay, ongoing monitoring is defined as scrutiny of transactions undertaken through the course of a relationship to ensure the transactions are consistent with your knowledge of the client business risk profile, right? um well a business relationship is formed when a solicitor undertakes a, a a one-off conveyancing a conveyance for the likes of you and i which may take two months say start to finish so how would you apply ongoing monitoring to that scenario it's only a one-off two-month relationship you can make sure that the, the source of funds or details haven't changed from start to finish but it's not an ongoing you don't need transaction monitoring on such a uh, on such a business relationship. If you talk about, for example, SARS, and Adam touched upon this, SARS under Polka is another one. There's been much talk around underreporting of SARS, and I generally, in the DNFPV section, uh, sector, and I generally agree with that. But if I can perhaps outline a reason why. So take a scenario. Prospective client walks into solicitor's office, wants to do a purchase of a, of a property, whatever, a lease. They have an initial chat, but the solicitor doesn't like it and applies a smell test, sends the client away, Okay, doesn't want to do business, may at that stage have concerns, but does he or she have reasonable cause to suspect or grounds for suspicion at that stage? Probably not. It's not that there there has at that stage been an ongoing relationship or enough KYC undertaken to determine if that concern has built into a suspicion, yeah. And I think that's absolutely fundamental and key. And I'm not debating whether or not um, there is an underreporting of the, of sars by DNFPBs. Frankly, I think there probably is generally but we have to consider the nuances involved in the client and professional relationship in that dynamic. Okay. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much. Quite a comprehensive overview there. Um, but certainly the customer relationship aspect is something which is really, really important. Something which a lot of our audience might not necessarily, uh, appreciate in the same way. Uh, certainly what you're saying in terms of, you know, as as a bank, you're, communicate or receiving information about your customers on a daily basis uh, based on their transactions. Uh, Whereas, you know, any kind of DNFBP, as you say, it's purely situational and only really you're having an interaction with the customer, you know, as and when it needs to be. Um, So, you know, Adam, I'll ask you kind of to follow on from that uh what role does customer due diligence play in aml and ctf compliance for dnfbps and and how can these businesses effectively conduct uh customer due diligence bearing these factors in mind
2: sure so look look, I, I, look ultimately I, I think KYC is absolutely critical for these organizations because you know some of the good points Graham made were really good points there you know some customers slash possibly many customers of dnfps won't be making regular transactions that you do in a in a financial institution right you're not putting your deposits in and getting money out and move money to third parties the money's either going into the dnfp or you might be getting a bit of a refund from the dnfp but you're basically paying for a service and you're only giving money to the dnfps if they're going to move the money or it's it's conveyancing or something like that where you know that money's there's a big batch of money going in. It's going to to a third party. So often these transactions are, you know, very much one-offs or, or very ad hoc in, in their nature with a FPV, which then goes into the point of how else do you monitor your customers if you don't really have that regular transactional activity, which is determining whether that activity is suspicious or not. Well, it goes into KYC. And I, I think there's a, a few other points that Graham made, which, I'd like to sort of elaborate on there is modern day banking now when you get financial, you know, modern day banking, financial services. Okay. If you want to get a bank account these days, you'd never walk into a branch anymore. Um, I I cannot think of the last time I walked into a high street branch um, and deposited money or opened an account or took money out of an account. Um, it, It was years. It was years and years ago I last walked into a physical branch myself. Everything now is done online. Um, you you do your onboarding online. You create a, you can create an account online. You can close an account online. You may have to call them up um, on occasion, but it's it's either online or via a phone call that you access your bank and, and communicate with your your banks nowadays. Okay, DNFPs. Yes, you can do that online. I think to a point you can do it over the phone probably to a point. But a lot of the time there will be some sort of physical interaction between the DFVP, especially when it comes to the smaller, more sort of family run businesses and a customer. So they're more likely, and I'm not saying in all occasions, but they are more likely to physically see the person they are doing business with. Um, if that person runs a company, they're more likely to see that person on a more regular basis because generally you know back to Graham's point you know if you have a business that you are using an accountant for um, to help support you or you're using a legal firm for to support you generally that'll be a an ongoing long-term relationship that you've got with them where the chances are it's going to be somebody local to you that you're dealing with and it's somebody going to be it's going to be somebody who's probably got an office local to where you're operating your business and so the chances are you're going to go into that office or they're going to come to your site of work and you'll probably have a a more personal relationship with this accountant, you know, um, lawyer, whoever it is you're you're dealing with. And so, you know, going back to the point about, about KYC, CDD, it's critical because there is no other point of contact or very little point of contact from the transaction ongoing point of view. So it's really important you understand who they are, you know, what they're doing, and really where the source of funds and the source of wealth is. that, that you know That is really critical for these DNFPs because like I said earlier, right, the money that they receive from their customers will go into what is effectively an omnibus account in the bank. So the bank won't be able to really see whether this is suspicious or not. Because all they're seeing is, is the business, i.e. the accountancy or the law firm, transactions occurring, not the underlying customer's transactions occurring. So really, it's really the eyes and ears in terms of what's going on and, and whether this is suspicious or not is really the onus is really on on the DFBP to a point because they have a relationship. I think because they have, again, these smaller firms have much more of a personal relationship with some of these customers, um, especially the ones that deal with customers on a long term basis. I think Graham said it earlier, the sniff test, um, does it smell right or not? I think they're more likely to have a sniff test to understand what is normal for a customer, what should be normal for a customer, and therefore what's abnormal. Because, you know, lo and behold, the the days of banking where you'd go and see a bank manager and you'd sit down with them for half an hour, an hour, three hours, and discuss your finances and your business and what you want to do. You know, that's gone away now. So really, these DNFPs are still, I guess, to a point in that game where they can sit down with somebody and discuss with them and share paperwork and go through signatures. And you know, you can get a much better sniff test if someone's in front of you having to answer questions in front of you real time and you're having a conversation discussion to feel what feels normal, what doesn't feel normal. So I think it's not just KYC, but I think it's just that relationship as a whole. Um, I think you're in a much better place as the NFP to understand normality. But then it goes back to one of my earlier points. Okay, if you are in that 1% of DNFPs who are operating in a world where you know that you're dealing with criminals or you know that you're dealing with somebody who's got a CD business, okay, but they are giving you funds and they're giving you money and you're getting paid for their services. um, You know, again, another point that Graham made quite rightly was, this is their livelihood. These DFPs, This is how they make their money. This is how they put food on the table. This is how they feed their get get their kids to school. Okay, some of these are like very small organizations. You know, if you're getting money from a quote unquote a criminal who you think doesn't feel right, doesn't look right, but actually I'm getting a lot of money from them. You know, the question is then, do you, you know, do you report that in SR if 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 you're know you're involved in that world I think a lot some people will do um, I think some DNFPs will and absolutely they do you, know, you look at the SAR numbers there are there are DNFPs who are filing SARs okay that there's no dispute on that they are filing SARs could they file more SARs quite possibly but you know again Graham's point I'm, I'm referring a lot to Graham sorry I'm referring a lot to you but you made some very good points in your answers last time hey some of them might just get rid of the relationship before they even start on board in the council go look I'm not doing with you but I think the question is even if you do really good KYC, there's there's a legitimate businesses who will do very good KYC, who will onboard the customers, who will report things when things don't feel right or seem right, or just say, actually, we're not going to deal with you at all. We're going to exit the relationship completely. But there's I think there's the minority of businesses who you could do the best KYC in the world. If, if you are knowingly involved with a criminal and you're facilitating that business, you're doing the accountancy work for them, you're doing the legal work for them, knowing that they're criminal you know, you could do the best KYC in the world, but if you're going to carry on with a criminal, then it's almost immaterial whether you've done KYC or not, right? Um, So I I think, I'm I'm sure Graham can answer, come back on that one. But yeah, that's my view is, look, KYC is absolutely critical. um, But I think there's a point where if you're knowingly involved in criminals, then it's sort of immaterial.
1: Yeah, I mean, so Adam, I I mean, I I can't dispute that, of course. I mean, I would say that, you know, even within that 1% that we're talking about, I think even, I don't know, 0.5% 0.5% of that is then people who may just be oblivious wrongly, they have professional obligations um, and they 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 need to do CDD and they should have a an awareness. But for the majority of them, you know, again, it's a sliding scale of criminality versus um just not knowing or not not looking. And I, I'm not saying I'm not excusing that, they should be, right? And then I look at okay, and all you say is correct, but then I look at the banking sector, which after 30, 40 years of being regulated for AML purposes quite strictly, you know, you look at that West and black bin bags and massive fines, you know, you know, you know, black bin bags been shuffling through branch doors, you know, and that's still occurring. So this isn't an issue simply in DNFPBs and that very, in the minority of DNFPBs involved. And the minority of bankers involved as well. I mean, it, it goes on across the regulated sector, not simply DNFPBs. Thanks.
2: No, absolutely, yeah, I, I totally agree, Graham. You know, no, no one's white in the white, and you know, every sector's got issues. Yeah. Um And I, I think I think every sector can do better. Yeah. I think I don't. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's a qu- it's an interesting question of um, you know, the whole turning a blind eye versus actively you know looking at your customers and i think you know we mentioned a couple of times the sniff test is a powerful one um so you know if something doesn't seem right you know you do have a due diligence to to follow up and maybe maybe everything is legitimate there but at least then you've you know you've done your job um graham there's an increased focus this as we've as we've talked about uh there's an increased focus on aml supervision of dnfbps both nationally and internationally um can you briefly uh because I'm, I'm slightly aware of time uh can you briefly tell us about what you and your colleagues uh are doing to address this challenge
1: yeah sure so um obviously as i mentioned we're all now under the oversight of the office of professional body AML supervision um, and that's housed within the fca i think that's been a really Positive development all in all. I welcome their input. I work collaboratively with them as I would expect any of my supervisees to, to work with me. And I I tend to use it as a lever to drive positive change. So when they come up with findings, I I embrace them and I put them into practice. And I think um, the vast majority of, of my colleagues do the same in, in different organizations. I mean. Within the Law Society of Scotland, look, we've we've increased our specialist high count. We've now got five um, AML specialists uh, in the team, all them, the majority of them from a financial services specialist AML background coming from Lloyds Bank and other places. Um, we have a new AML subcommittee who um, look at egregious cases that we put before them. They have a specialist knowledge, so we have people... From banking, we have people from law enforcement, uh, you know, and other professions on on, on that uh, subcommittee, which brings a level of scrutiny that we didn't have before. Uh, We've completely revamped our supervisory assurance regime. We now have a a compulsory annual supervisory return. There's about 70 questions on that, which uh, our supervisees, our supervised population must return every year. That allows us to do proper risk profiling and analysis, so we have seven categories of law firms ranging from high-high inherent risk to low-low inherent risk, and that allows us to apply a risk-based approach. We do thematic reviews, so we the last one was on PCPs, the next one will probably be on suspicious activity reporting. Um, we do intelligence-led reviews, so we have signed data sharing, intelligence sharing agreements with Police Scotland, with um, uh, HMRC on the ground and locally, and that's really benefiting us. So we do uh, reviews based on intelligence we get from law enforcement. We do single file inspections, attestations, you, you name it. We also just um, do a lot of extensive AML website content, so we put toolkits and templates, FAQs. TCSP information, SARS webinars, guidance out there. We do a, a whole lot. One of the things I, I like to talk about as well is we do a lot of outreach work. So we work with lo- young lawyers and universities because the students of today will be the senior partners of tomorrow. So we'd really try and seed and embed AML compliance at an early stage of career so that when they reach senior partners, it's, it's just part of doing business. It's not something they do... Off the side of the desk it's just part and parcel of what they do so we do an inordinate amount of work that we are and i'm aware that other DNFPB supervisors do similar work and uh, there's a lot of sophisticated and specialist work going on if you scratch underneath the surface i mean there's a lot of talk around um you know the effectiveness of of uh, professional body supervision from my understanding and I I welcome challenge and I welcome people asking about it. We do and I know my colleague across the UK do a lot of really good work in this space. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a solicitor. I am an AML professional and I am a regulator. And so much more collaboration with law enforcement, etc, as well. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on, which probably people especially in financial services don't see day in day out.
0: Thanks. Thank you, Graham. Yeah, it sounds like you uh, you're kept busy uh, by all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so just to just to wrap us up uh, for this conversation, uh, Adam, uh, looking ahead how do you foresee the aml and ctf landscape evolving for dnfbps i know we've mentioned you know efforts in the us being stalled and graham mentioned about uh, regulations being brought in uh, in australia um but more broadly what sort of trends or changes should businesses in this sector be prepared for
2: so so look i i, I think there needs to be greater unification uh, and again Graham's mentioned touching that but I, I think you know we've got different regulatory bodies I, I think there needs to be greater unification of, of them all coming together um, under a single umbrella or working together like Graham mentioned but that's not just in the UK that's that's across the world right I think in order to tackle this there has to be a commonality across you know all the regulators regulating all DFPP so I think I'd like to see us really starting to kick forward the regulations like we talked about earlier um but but i also think what we need as well is a greater awareness of dnfps because i i've been sort of singing this um or banging this drum so to speak for a while now about dnfps being a risk and you know not really being sort of represented equally in this whole sort of like viewpoint of uh Anti-money laundering, financial crime. I know FATF have put a bigger focus on DFPs as well. Um, they, they've definitely sort of upped their focus um, in in terms of this area and said we need to do more. Um, you know, from a global point of view. Uh, but I think you know we need to carry on doing the enforcement, carry on doing the supervision, supervision. You know, prosecute where we can and, and really sort of like sing, you know, sing about what's going on to the media just let people aware, aware of it. But really, I, I think really look the, the, the key things to wrap this up is. There needs to be greater consolidation between uh, various parties. I think there needs to be greater awareness, especially in the financial sector, financial institutions, on DNFPs, the risk of DNFPs, and maybe even what to look for when they start monitoring for DNFPs for activity. Because, um, like I said, it is omnibus accounts, but there is stuff you can look for and you can find within that, within the banking sector, that might look unusual or suspicious. So I think it's really sort of raised that awareness, um, you know for the financial institutions and globally, but that's really why I'm seeing things going. And I think there will be greater noise, there will be greater um, sort of focus on this um, as we move forward over the next um, year or two. And I'm sure Graham will make sure of that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, Graham, you sound busy already, and things I'm sure are only going to get busier for you as the years go on in regards to DNF BPs. Uh, well. Thank you both uh, for a really, really interesting conversation. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. A very special thanks to my guests, Adam McLaughlin, Global Head of Financial Crime Strategy and AML SME at Nice Actimize, and Graham McKenzie, Head of AML at the Law Society of Scotland, and to you for watching. For FS Tech, I'm Jonathan Easton. Goodbye. This FS Tech podcast was written and presented by Jonathan Easton who was joined by Adam McLaughlin and Graham McKenzie, and it was produced and edited by Matt Mills. To learn more about FSTech, head over to fstech.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the FSTech podcast.